Hey everyone, welcome to the Hip Health is Power podcast episode number 29. I am your host, Dr. Anna Esperham, and we have a very special guest today, Dr. Erica Moseson. I'm super excited to introduce you all to her. She's a pulmonary and critical care doc, or basically a lung and ICU physician, um, and she's going to be talking about air health and its relationship to our health. Hence, she founded Air Health, Our Health. It's an educational resource regarding the intersection between breathing healthy air and the well-being and wealth of our communities, which we'll get into. So she hosts the Air Health, Our Health podcast. So check that out. And she interviews experts on everything from um, diesel exhaust, um, advocacy for improving air pollution, tobacco and vaping, ultimately to improve public health. And she is one of the American Lung Association's health professionals for the clean air and climate action. And she also serves as the president of the Organ Thoracic Society and practices full-time pulmonary and critical care medicine, so the lung and ICU doctor. And she's a mother of three children, so she does quite a bit. I want you to check her out. I'm going to have some resources for you at the very end of the podcast. And without further ado, let's get started. Hi, hipsters. Welcome to the Hip Health is Power podcast. And I'm your host, Dr. Anna Esperham. I am an MD with triple board certifications in integrative functional medicine, pediatrics, and medical acupuncture with special pain training and clinical hypnosis and aromatherapy certifications. We have a team of healthcare professionals here that provide real and evidence-based information to support women on their health and wellness path. And our goal is to empower you to heal and recover from health issues with whether it be chronic pain, illness, or just life stressors, to perform your best, feel your healthiest, to become full of vitality and stamina, to be who you love and do what you love. And I'm also legally obligated to tell you my disclaimer. The Hip Health is Pow Her podcast and website offers information regarding health, wellness, medicine, supplements, therapies, nutrition, fitness, and well-being for educational purposes only. I am a physician, but not your physician, so you should not rely on this information to substitute or replace any professional medical advice, diagnosis, treatment, or healthcare plan. Hi, Dr. Erica Mosesen. Thank you so much for coming to the Health is Power podcast and being interviewed today. I think air health is such a huge topic that doesn't see a lot of the light of the day out in media that we really want to, um, you know, talk about its importance and its impact on our health um, and, you know, many people's illnesses. And it's, it's not just something that is not going to affect us if it's in, you know, New York or somewhere else that's polluted. And so I just want to um, have you talk about how you kind of got into, you know, promoting air health and advocating for clean air um, and promoting environmental health and then also kind of, you know, your background as well. Absolutely. So I'm a pulmonary critical care doctor, which means I take care of patients um, with lung diseases when I see them in clinic. And then I also work in the intensive care unit, taking care of people who are very severely ill, whether from lung diseases or heart attacks, strokes, or anything else. And just the more I do this, um, the more I realize how much 
the air we breathe determines our health, right? So I think a lot of people are familiar with smoking cigarettes, causing heart attacks, strokes, asthma, COPD, and landing people in the ICU. But unfortunately, you know, combustion is, you know, kind of bad for our health. I always tell my patients, we don't want to light things on fire and breathe them into our lungs. And that applies to, you know, diesel fuels, a lot of other combustion fuels, whether for heating or power generation. The more I was working, I realized um, how much breathing unhealthy air, you know, can make people really sick. And I think a lot of us think about cigarette smoke, right? And, you know, smoking being unhealthy and causing heart attacks, strokes, you know, chronic obstructive lung diseases, emphysema, and those things. However, you know, kind of breathing combustion materials from a whole variety of sources actually makes people really sick. And that includes, you know, air pollution from fuels, you know, living by a road that it includes, you know, the emissions from different construction equipment that includes, you know, diesel fuel in particular um, has a lot of health problems. It also can include the fuels people use to heat their homes. It can include, you know, combustion used for power generation. And it really has effects on the body. You know, I say womb to tomb, right? It causes, you know, premature deliveries. It can cause, you know, asthma in kids. It can cause, you know, um, you know, um, you know, you know, ozone can cause emphysema. We know that there's, again, these risks of heart attacks, strokes, cognitive changes, all of these things that are really kind of associated in a dose-dependent way on breathing, you know, unhealthy air. And I think because the air is literally invisible, a lot of times people just don't think about how much that can be contributing to um, sickness in their communities. Um, and so that's what made me get more into advocating for the importance of healthy air. Yeah, I I think it's amazing. I you know actually just thinking about this, um, I had a, a fire in the house once that I was in, and and so I you know was breathing um, all that combustion and and the particles and everything because I was still there. I had to put out. It was a kitchen fire, and and um, afterward, I do remember. Oh my gosh, I think it was when I started fellowship and I was so sick and I was, but I was sick for several months. I mean, just kind of like malaise and just not sleeping well. I mean, and I, I mean, I wasn't even thinking it was related to the fire. Um, I just knew it was a big trauma. I was thinking it was more stress, but yeah, maybe there was something, you know, related to all the smoke I inhaled. Actually, yeah. Later today, I'm doing an interview with um, someone from the University of Montana who studies uh, wildfire smoke and its effect on population. So here on the West Coast, I live in Oregon, and for a while we had the honor of breathing the unhealthiest air in the world um, with these catastrophic wildfires on the West Coast. Um, and, you know, California has been dealing with them. And we know that you know, um, in the days following these big fire events, you actually see an increase in sudden cardiac death. Um, over time, we know that the rates of, you know, heart disease and that um, and other illnesses kind of go up and they stay elevated even when the air clears. This was actually most dramatically seen in the killer smog of London. I don't know if a lot of people saw that show The Crown, but they kind of dramatized that. But, you know, even though there was this inversion that caused the air pollution to spike, even once the air pollution levels dropped, there was still a higher weekly death rate following that spike. And the researcher I'm interviewing later today it was from University of Montana and Sealy Lakes. Um, they had this area of, they had severe fires and they had this town that was breathing, you know, PM 2.5 levels, which is a, you know, a, a particle that a lot of different combustion sources can emit that were really unhealthy, like in the 200 range for over a month. And the American Thoracic Society recommends levels below 12 or 11, I'm sorry, 
and they found that the lung function in that town went down. But even when they've gone back in the following years, people's lung function is still lower. And so I think fires are this kind of dramatic example, right? Because you can actually see all the particles. You see a lot of heavy particles in the air. And then you also, um, you know, breathe in a lot. and You can really feel it because it's such a big change. But even just low chronic levels of this particulate matter, um, whether from living in a house with a smoker, um, which is actually pretty high levels, or um, you know, just living by a road, or kids having their schools um, by a high traffic road, or riding you know diesel school buses, um, you know that are kind of older engines can just cause you know lifelong disease. Is there you know talking about you know air health and and chronic disease and lung health? Uh, since you're an ICU physician as well, is have you seen? any studies or any associations with some of the air pollution um, and lung health and COVID? Yes, absolutely. So there's, um, there are studies showing that as particulate matter levels increase, you actually have more severe um, um, COVID. Um, oh no. The COVID cases are more severe and, it, and you have probably higher transmission levels. And there's a couple different theories for why that is. So um, for example, using the analogy of cigarette smoking, um, we do know that people who smoke cigarettes are more likely to develop acute respiratory distress syndrome. Um, and there's a whole bunch of reasons why their lungs kind of get leakier. Um, there's, um, you know, they, and, and they get it more likely even if they don't have a, like a lung infection, right? Even if you get pancreatitis and you smoke, um, which is a inflammation of the pancreas that can kind of make people really, really sick, that you're still more likely to get a, a acute respiratory distress syndrome. Or even if you're in a car crash, like if you're in a car crash and have a big trauma and you go to the hospital, there's a kind of a traumatic lung injury that manifests as this respiratory distress syndrome that you're more likely to get if you smoke cigarettes. And so some people think that, you know, people who are kind of exposed, it's kind of like you're, you know, smoking traffic fuel, I guess, all the time, or, you know, just kind of smoking the local air pollution, that PM 2.5 level, as that goes up, people had a higher risk of more severe COVID disease, you know, oh. and, and we're still, or, and then there's another thought is, you know, or does the virus just, you know, kind of hitch a ride on some of these particulate matter particles and just penetrate more deeply into the lung, or, you know, maybe it's just a surrogate of higher population levels or something, but they did kind of correct for that in a lot of these studies. And it, it doesn't seem like that's the only thing that's probably going on. Um, and then for tobacco smoking with COVID-19, I mean, there's a lot of misinformation that the tobacco industry is trying to put out there, but don't get me started. <laughs> But for tobacco smoke with COVID-19, um, it looks like people who, who are known to be, you know, regular smokers, if they do get COVID, they're more likely to have a, a progressive, fulminant, you know, severe course of COVID. So I am actually very worried about, um, you know, air pollution levels in COVID-19. And I'm especially worried on the West Coast after all these huge fire events. Because, um, you know, we'd actually gotten our levels, our community transmission, you know, was going down pretty well towards the end of the summer. And now we're having these massive spikes again on the West Coast. And I, I worry that some of that might be maybe the some particular matter transmission that had happened. But I also think probably people having to like flee and, you know, and go into smoke shelters and, you know, abandon you know, their attempts at, you know, social distancing because of the catastrophic fires. Um, so obviously a lot of these things kind of get mixed together. But I think, um, you know, we know that, you know, particulate matter and, you know, and smoking increases your risk of like pneumonia and, and viruses and stuff. So um, it, it changes the immune system as well, you know, not just causing inflammation, but also probably changing the immune system or, or weakening the immune system. Has that been shown as well? Yeah, absolutely. So one thing we worry about with like, for example, with the analogy with cigarette smoking is the little, you're, you're supposed to have these little cilia, like these little hairs that line 
their, your nose, like their cellular hairs kind of that line your nose and your, your lung, the lining of your lungs that are supposed to kind of clear, you know, material out. Um, and those don't work like with cigarette smoking. And they've also started to show it with e-cigarettes as well, that those get damaged um, with kind of this, you know, inhalation. And I, you know, I'm always telling my patients, you know, don't light things on fire and breathe them into your lungs. Your lungs don't have, you know, like politics or intention, right? They don't, understand that oh well i didn't mean to breathe that therefore you can't affect my lungs right <laughs> unfortunately it's uh it all kind of comes in so i i do worry that there'll be you know immune changes that are probably related to that and again it's it's too early to know specifically for covid but just the pattern of particulate matter um and disease risk um across the spectrum from what we know before make me worried that that's going to be a factor with covid yeah yeah i mean all these i mean talking about Chem I know a lot about chemicals in general. I've, I've done quite a bit of research and study on, on endocrine disrupting chemicals and how they can affect, you know, the entire body and the immune system, the endocrine, the nervous system, et cetera. Um, but, you know, some of that you can stay away from, you can stay away from the makeup, you can stay away from, you know, the plastics and the chemicals, you know, as much as possible. Um, obviously some is going to be in our water because it's not regulated well enough. And, but when you're talking about air pollution, you know, and of course, wildfires, especially in your area and in Colorado, you know, especially this year, um, I mean, how, how do we, I mean, take care of ourselves? Yeah, it's really hard. And, you know, there's a lot of, um, you know, kind of similar to with water, there's a lot of inequity and environmental, you know, justice issues with, you know, kind of who makes the pollution and who breathes it in. Um, you know, this is something that kind of has fallen disproportionately on, you know, poor communities, communities of color, um, you know, and that's been shown over and over again in the air pollution literature, um, you know, that, for example, we know that, um, I know you're a pediatrician, like, in, you know, like, you know, black children with asthma are unfortunately at a higher risk of dying from asthma. And I think this is a lot of it, you know, even here in Portland, Oregon, um, you know, the, you know, the historic heart of the black community in North Portland is, you know, right by a freeway, right under the airport has some of the worst, um, you know, air quality levels, you know, there's a middle school there named Harriet Tubman Middle School, and it's on Flint <laughs> Street, you wouldn't believe it, um, that um, has, you know, air that's, you know, kind of unsafe to breathe outside when the kids are playing at recess at times, and they have this, you know, very elaborate air filtration system now on the roof. Um, but I just keep thinking about that community and everyone growing up in the community, right? Like most other people are just living there in regular houses. You know, they don't have an elaborate air filtration system. Um, and so, um, and so this is something that it has a lot of, you know, inequity built into it. And because you, you do a lot of times you don't have control over that, you know, like a lot of people were kind of bearing the brunt of the air pollution, you know, don't actually make much of it. Um, which is, you know, again, kind of like the justice side of things. So I think, you know, part of it is, you know, advocating is, you know, advocating for policies to kind of have healthier air and have people be aware of it. Um, you know, if you have the means, so, you know, we do know, for example, when they've done studies of, you know, drivers in London, um, that, um, you know, people who are driving like a hybrid vehicle or like a lower emitting vehicle, because there is some auto pollution, right? So you actually do, you know, I think we think of like the engine just, you know, puts the exhaust out the back but if you you know are driving a cleaner vehicle you actually experience cleaner air inside driving with the you know the wind if you're in traffic windows up and on recirc um seems to kind of diminish the particulate burden in the car 
Um, and then um, there's a lot of other studies about um, like when kids are walking to school, like, you know, trying to be on like lower traffic roads, same thing, like kind of trying to make sure your community has areas where people who are like biking and walking and that sort of thing are probably separated out from the heavy traffic. And even short distances can make a difference. Like they, at Portland State University, they studied even just putting the bike lane in between the sidewalk and the parking lane and even just kind of moving that car widths over actually decreased the particulate burden like and the of this ultra fine particles that the that the um, cyclists were breathing so i think just kind of being conscientious of it and obviously trying to move you know towards emitting less particulate matter and doing less combustion for power and transportation and everything is overall kind of where you want to go um, but even just small amounts um can be helpful you know like um and um you know even just like all when i'm walking with my kids kind of hold back from the you know the intersection and stop a little bit farther away um and then you know kind of thinking and some of it has to do with just community planning about like well where are we going to put our parks are we going to make sure that you know our school like in california they've now mandated that schools can't be i think they have to have like a certain step back from the road um to decrease the particulate exposure for the kids um and all these things have great benefits so and then really pushing to make sure your, your school buses are um you know upgraded to a post 2007 engine and really especially with diesel particulate matter for kids there's this great study that was done in seattle where the puget sound kind of air quality board was helping fund these upgrades to all the school buses to get them to a, a more recent engine at the same time that um that the US EPA was mandating a change to ultra low sulfur diesel. And with that, it was wonderful. They followed the kids for four years. They rode with them on the buses. They kind of, they followed a lot of kids with asthma too. Um, and they kind of measured the particulates that the kids were breathing. And that they found that as they upgraded these buses, the air pollution in the buses fell and the kids missed fewer sick days. And it wasn't just the kids with asthma. It was all the kids missed way fewer sick days. And everyone's trying to figure out ways to keep kids in school, right? Um, and it was great. And more importantly, their lung function improved. Um, and so you can really get these like short term benefits. And um, I think partly by just not ignoring that it's a problem, because I think because it seems like such a big problem, everyone feels like it's too much and they can't handle it. But I think kind of really coming together as a community and like investing into, you know, protecting the most vulnerable, right? Like making sure our kids are okay, making sure we're not like abandoning certain communities to be breathing unhealthy air is really a, I mean, it's, it's a win-win for everybody, right? None of us, we're already spending so much on healthcare in America. Like who wants to spend more, <laughs> right? So we like clean up the air. People can stay at work. They're not staying home with sick kids. Like it helps out our employers. It helps out our workers. It helps out our whole economy just by keeping the air clean. So, yeah. And, and when you're talking about, you know, some of these, even just small solutions and staying away from it, I'm kind of thinking now, oh, great. Because we're out in the country, everybody has bonfires, you know, and every neighbor is like on the weekend, they're, you know, always burning their leaves or throwing bonfire parties. And, you know, we're inhaling the smoke every single weekend. And I'm like, oh, wonderful. And so when you're thinking about um, a lot of this air pollution as, you know, just a regular person, are are we um, supposed to use some kind of special filter in the house or, I mean, is there something that helps protect us even more from um, certain, um, you know, pollution air particles? Yeah, so um, air filtration systems can absolutely work. You definitely want to make sure um, you're kind of, it, it's hard because it's an area that's not very well regulated. 
Um, and so there's a lot of people that'll sell you stuff, <laughs> yep. you know? Um, and so I actually on the air health, our health website have some resources about indoor air quality. And I, with the wildfires, I actually, one of my episodes is with a, um, an HVAC researcher <laughs> an indoor air quality specialist at Portland state university, who this is kind of his area of expertise and what he studies. And we kind of walk through what, you know, kind of what to be looking for and what not to look for. One big thing to stay away from is, um, ozone generating air filters. So there's a lot of pseudoscience out there. Um, and there's a lot of things that people will say you. Um, so kind of the big principles are you want um, something that actually works to filter, like ideally like in a, in, a, in a kind of a mechanical way by like moving the air through a filter, right? Not something that pretends that it's going to put something out in the air and cause a chemical reaction that's going to clean up your air, which is kind of what the ozone generators say they do. Um, and because we say ozone is good up high, bad nearby, <laughs> right? Don't, don't breathe it. We like it up in the ozone layer, but we, we don't want to breathe it in our you know, around us. Um, and, and then you also want to make sure it's sized appropriately for the room. Um, and so, and there's the, one of the best, the, this isn't an area that's very well regulated for a whole host of reasons that I don't quite understand, but the California Air Resources Board actually has um, filters that they've tested um, to kind of meet these better standards. Because I struggle with this a lot because, you know, I'll have patients ask, you know, ask what I think, but a lot of my patients don't have a lot of money, right? Um, and so, you know, I, I'm always hesitant to tell them to go, you know, buy a $300 or $500 air filter if it's, if it's not going to be kind of like the right kind. Um, and, and so you can kind of get these individual systems that you can kind of plug in. Um, and then you can also get whole house systems, depending on how, you know, your home and how old it is. And, and or if you're kind of buying a new home, this is increasingly an option. Um, and then you can, you know, get filters, you know, that kind of filter the air in the whole home. Um, it is actually kind of important to know how your house breathes. <laughs> um, and so, um, uh, and so they're like, you know, sometimes there's systems where it's like you bring in air from the outside and actually fan out the air in the house and have that kind of pass through a filter. Or sometimes you have things that are kind of a more passive system. So if there's a big wildfire smoke, you know, situation and your system is to actually actively pull in air from the outside, you actually want to be able to know how to turn that off for the period of the fire so that you're not kind of bringing more unhealthy air in. Because mm. the big challenge is honestly, most of indoor air quality is, is determined by um, outdoor air quality, unless you have someone in the home who's, you know, smoking and that sort of thing. Because then, you know, obviously being in the house with a lot of cigarette smoke or other smoke production can make indoor air quality worse. Um, but it, it is kind of worth getting to, to know your home and how um, it breathes, as I like to say. Um, and then if you do want to look into getting an air filter, just really kind of making sure to avoid some of the pseudoscience out there and look for, make sure that it's kind of been staged appropriately. And there are different societies that kind of have good guidelines for that. And I like the way that the um, California Resource Board kind of lays it out on their site. And so if people go to the airhealthourhealth.org website, um, I have some sections on indoor air quality. Okay, great. And I'll provide that in the podcast detail so people can check out your website to get to those resources as well. Um, talking about, I don't know if you know this, but when the wildfires were going on that I know of in California, I don't know if you know, but when, you know, the government allocates, you know, certain funds, especially for clearing of certain areas or dedicated, you know, fires as I was a, a wildlife biologist, I used to uh, study environmental biology, more on the wildlife side, studying the ecology um, of forests and mountains and animals. And 
And so, you know, what we would recommend is, you know, doing, um, you know, dedicated, you know, little fires so that we'd keep everything under control. So there wasn't these big, you know, huge wildfires. And so I don't know if you know, you know, when California decided not to put in the funding to kind of dedicate some of those smaller, you know, controlled fires to keep the bigger wildfires fires from going on. I mean, do you know if there's any work right now with um, the government trying to promote sort of um, of these dedicated controlled fires to prevent these big wildfires from happening, even though it does um, cost a little bit of money up front? Yeah, well, I think one of the things, and again, I'm not, I just want to be really clear, I'm not, I don't work for the, you know, U.S. Forest Service, and I'm not a, you know, fire expert, so I, you know, this is more just kind of as a lay person who's been interested in listening. I was listening to an interview with someone from Cal Fire, um, and they, you know, they they have wanted to do more treated, um, more what they call treatment or controlled burns, and I know that's something that's been being done in, um, you know, in eastern Oregon a bit. I think the hard part is, um, is again, kind of so much of the the firefighting budget or so much of like the force budget and all these things gets sucked into the actually the fighting the fires um and then trying to fund the preventive efforts um gets is is underfunded and so i think trying to um you know work towards trying to kind of have like a professional year-round you know service that can do that i think that's a i think that's a goal for a lot of people i think um, and I don't actually think there's, but at least when I've gone to like, so I went, I, there was a, 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 a big kind of like wildland fires, health effects symposium in, at Cal, uh, UC Riverside. And they, you know, they had, you know, fire professionals there and different researchers. I actually don't think there's much disagreement that um, stopping controlled burns has caused a lot of problems. Um, obviously that plus climate change, you know. Um, I think it's just more trying to find the the funding to basically it, it's almost like an entire new service that needs to be staffed now um to do the scale so i mean i know we do controlled burns in a small scale in oregon i think the only issue is that like the the percentage of the forests that we're treating is just so small compared to what the what needs to be treated and then i think there's also sometimes people are victims of their own success so i was listening to one interview with a firefighter who said that you know they plan for controlled burns and they'd all get they'd all get set up and then you know, people would complain to their local air resource board that they were smelling smoke. And so then they get shut down. So <laughs> it's, uh, you cycle. know, I think, you know, yeah, exactly. Well, some, some, I think of it as kind of like vaccinating our forests, right? It's like you get your flu shot, you want to like vaccinate the forest with like a little dose of fire. So you don't get these big catastrophic fires. Oh, um, good analogy. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I do, you know, so it's not that I'm saying don't ever light things on fire, just try not to breathe it. And maybe just a little bit so we don't have the big, big fire burdens. <laughs> well, I mean, if you can't fund it, and then I mean, look at I mean, how much they have to fund now because of all the wildfires is such no, a bad I think cycle. It's an totally. absolutely smart investment. And I think that's one of the things is that I think, um, I think people don't, one of the things I talk about is air health, our health, our wealth, because I don't think we appreciate how much wealth we have just by breathing healthy air, right? And but then when these things happen, like, you know, if you think about even just if you're not even going to think about like the lives lost and like the property destroyed, but just think about the economic hit that all the any everywhere that suffers severe fires takes, right? So if you rely on you know, outdoor activities for any part of your economy or tourism revenue or something that just gets shut down, right? And you can really hurt, especially some of these, you know, more rural communities that really rely on, you know, people coming and hiking and camping and, you know, doing all these things, you know, you basically, you really shut down all that activity versus if you, um, 
you know, maintained, you know, you, I, I view it as an investment, right? Like anything we can do to invest in avoiding these big catastrophic fires or invest in, you know, maintaining healthier air pays off dramatically. So for example, the American Lung Association looked at, you know, what would happen if we all, like if, you know, passenger vehicles, I think became new passenger vehicles sold were, became electric, you know, by, you know, they did different timeframes, this time frame, and then eventually like long, you know, our bigger, you know, moving equipment and, you know, trucks and that sort of thing became electric a little later. And I mean, the amount of asthma attacks you would save, the billions in healthcare dollars you would save, it's amazing, you know, so I think, and we know that, for example, the Clean Air Act, you know, back in the, you know, 70s or whenever, you know, and everyone, you know, you know, grunt, you know, was disgruntled about how much the government spent, you know, it was like $500 trillion in like cash for clunkers and all these different programs to try to clean up the air. But we've had over, you know, $22 trillion in economic activity that's been attributed to that, right? It's like, a, that's like a 20% annualized rate of return or something insane that we would all kill for in our, you know, investment portfolios, right? Like, I think, you know, when you're, when you can't breathe, you can't work. When you can't breathe, you can't go to school. And then rather than, you know, kind of living a creative full life and working and, you know, you just end up, you know, sick and taking medicines and, and, you know, not living up the life you want and, you know, and becoming, you know, somewhere we end up having to spend a lot of healthcare dollars and spend a lot of resources that rather than freeing all that up to just live full, healthy lives. Um, I think, it's just, you know, something that I, I, I think it really isn't everybody's best interest, you know, to, to invest money in helping prevent fires, cleaning up the air, helping people quit smoking, all these things. It's, um, yeah, I, I think the prevention is huge. And I think, I mean, just thinking about prevention for environmental health and climate change in itself, but also when you're talking about health and disease processes, when you, you said that, you know, air health, there's been associations with cardiovascular disease and, and you know, not just um, lung disease. And then when I, you know, when we were talking about um, um, so, some of this before the recording for the podcast, you know, when I just did that peer review for that article done on air pollution and um, risk of worsening migraine and pain. And mm -hmm. what's interesting about migraine and pain, well, migraine is really the third leading cause of disability in the world. And so if you think about disability, it's, you know, lost days um, of work, it's, um, you know, increased healthcare dollars, it's, I mean, the economy is really disrupted because of severe chronic diseases. And so when you're thinking about prevention, you're also thinking about prevention towards these chronic diseases that are soaking up a ton of money itself. So I think yeah. such a such a huge issue um, that we're discussing today. Um, and so I'm so excited. I And when you're talking about um, when you're talking about the uh, hybrid cars and the electric cars, um, just to sidetrack back a little bit, I um, was going to ask you, um, because I've heard this from other people who are driving, you know, regular cars, are, in terms of general air pollution, in terms of general climate change, um, do electric cars um, cause less air pollution, even though they're using electricity, which is from obviously, you know, coals, right? Well, it depends. So that's where you talk about the upstream and the downstream sources of the electricity. So that's one thing that the American Lung Association's analysis was was really excellent helping with. So um, so if you, obviously the big goal is also to be moving away from coal as a source of your electricity. So there's plenty of um, power districts where the increasingly almost the majority of the electricity is actually being generated by 
by renewables or by um, you know um, hydroelectric, wind, solar, um, or looking for alternatives. The 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 attraction about getting people into electric cars is that the dirtiest amount of the the it's it's dirtiest day is the day it's brought home and then if you're if the whole grid is moving towards a you know cleaner power generation that over time you don't really like an individual family because that's a huge investment is the car right it's the big investment is for that that family is the car then over time that car is it's going to be cleaner and cleaner and cleaner right as as we clean up the power supply and um, as because the the price of you know generating electricity with renewables is plummeting um, because of pretty significant advances in technology and that's what's nice about the way the American Lung Association did their analysis. It's a very holistic analysis. They actually, you know, take into account where the where the electricity is coming from and different scenarios. And they call that the up, you know, kind of upstream and and you know, kind of the upstream and on road um, elements of the emissions. But the answer is yes, which is good news. <laughs> awesome. Okay, good. Yeah, there was some people who were asking about that, and I honestly had no idea. So it was just an interesting topic. Um, and even you know, talking about industry. Um, and um, air pollution. What what do you know? Does like there is a particular um, you know thing that causes air pollution the most? Is it auto pollution or is it industry or? It really depends where you are. Um, okay. So in the United States, a lot of it is power generation. So you know, coal kind of being one of the the, the big players. Um, and you can actually um, kind of you know and look into there's different like emissions inventories that different states will usually have so you can kind of look it up based on like kind of your community or where you live um a lot of places it's you know on road it's us right it's on road traffic and and you know transportation or construction equipment um um but then a lot of it's all it's kind of or power and power generation are kind of the, the two big ones but it can vary based on kind of where you live is there um, something um, going on right now is in the United States or maybe even the world that you know of to promote, um, you know, decreasing the industry's carbon footprint? I don't know, subsidizing different renewable energy or yeah. So there's a ton of different programs all over the world. Um, you know, the U.S. had in, had started the Clean Power Plan um, under the. The, the previous administration that got had gotten put on hold by the U.S. Supreme Court, but that had been estimated to be one of our biggest opportunities to really decrease emissions. I don't know um, what's going to happen going forward. And there's a whole range. This is one of those things where you know there's a whole range of like kind of global actions that can be taken versus and local actions, right? So, um, you know, I think part of what you want to do is basically help kind of accelerate technology and adaptation so that it becomes just more and more affordable for everybody, right? So um, different um, municipalities will take different strategies like, you know, clean fleet standards, right? So you can just, you know, advocate for your local town to, um, you know, to if they're gonna buy vehicles for the city to have them be, you know, electric or low emitting vehicles. You can advocate for your city to, you know, commit to purchasing energy from renewable resources, you know, where you kind of have like the purchasing power of like a bigger, you know, um, you know, system or, you know, government, I guess, to, to kind of help move towards supporting that, um, that industry, right? So, you know, it's kind of hard for one person to be the only person owning an electric car in a town, right? Because where are the chargers going to be, you know, what's going to go on? But if your whole, if your city fleet kind of moves to that, then they have to make an infrastructure for it that the rest of the community can use. And that can kind of be like a little thing to help start tipping things to moving in the right direction. Um, and so, you know, I think there's there's opportunities for kind of, you know, local and national and statewide action. Um, 
and the American Lung Association, I mean, I work with them a lot, but they tend to have, you know, different, the people in every state who are, you know, focused on this. I mean, it's kind of like air pollution and tobacco or <laughs> kind of sources of a lot of disease. So the American Lung Association has um, people pretty much in each, either on a state-based or a region-based level that can absolutely help out with um, kind of what local initiatives or programs are. They'll also help fund things like, um, like in Oregon, I remember there was a while where we were trying to help people clean up their own indoor air. Like, cause a lot of people just, when you, especially people who don't have a lot of money might just, you know, kind of heat their houses by just fire, right? Um, which can actually cause a lot of illness. And so um, trying to help people get to like cleaner burning wood stoves or alternative like heat sources to try to make sure that people kind of have good indoor air quality. There's a kind of a whole range of programs. Um, and the ALA is a resource that I turn to to kind of point in the right direction, but there's a whole bunch of, I'm sure, of lo- local community organizations trying to work to help out. Okay, I can put the American Lung Association in in the podcast details and the show notes as well, too. Perfect. Yeah, they've got great sections on air pollution, climate, tobacco, all of it. Okay, okay, that's perfect. Um, we were also, before um, we started recording, we were going to talk about the air pollution and its relationship with the environment and, and pollen and allergies. I want to kind of get into that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, unfortunately, like I remember kind of looking into this one time. So I grew up in Oregon. I was born here. And um, and I remember I saw like a puddle or something and it had obviously had like this sheen of green pollen on it. And then it had dried on the sidewalk. So there's just this, like green pollen stain. And I just was looking at it and I was like, huh, I swear this did not exist when I was a kid. And granted, I was like clueless and oblivious about a lot of stuff. And I'm like, this is just different. And I never had like coughs or allergies. This is all very selfish, right? I never really had itchy eyes, cough or allergies when I was a kid. My my sister did. And I just remember thinking, oh, poor you, <laughs> but lucky me. Um, but now I get some allergies and it just seems like there's more um, pollen. And, um, and this is true, it turns out. So the U.S. Department of Agriculture um, and other places around the world have studied this. But basically, you can actually look, and this is both in micro and macro climate. So around North America, and then they've replicated the study in the world, you can see that there is actually um, about a month longer of a heavy pollen season than there was in the 1990s. And that's because CO2, like carbon, is a, is a plant food, right? So you're putting, we're putting more carbon in the atmosphere, um, which is generating, um, it's kind of tipping the like inputs to the plants, right? Um, and so they are actually making more pollen that is unfortunately also more allergenic because of the way the proteins are changing, and they're making it for longer. Um, and so when we think about the burden of like allergies and asthma already, <laughs> It's unfortunately just getting worse with climate change. Um, and you can see this, you know, there was a, there's a researcher, Louis Ziska, who had been at the U.S. Department of Agriculture, and they even looked, and so it happens kind of, it's happening all around the world, but it also happens even in like smaller areas. So they, they did a thing where they went into like the heart of Baltimore and then like out in a more rural area and kind of looked at like, you know, temperature and like ambient like CO2 levels and then had like ragweed plants where they like had coverage over the ragweed plants were just like capturing all the pollen they made. And it was absolutely true. It's like as you as you got warmer and as you had more, you know, like carbon emissions nearby, the plants just pumped out more ragweed. <laughs> so that is a bit of insane. A <laughs> yeah. That is so yeah. interesting. I is yeah. there? I mean, it's not know, in your head. <laughs> it's not, I know. Uh, well, my parents smoked when I was a kid, so of course I get allergies yeah. and asthma. But um, mm-hmm. but. Now, um, 
I mean, I'm just thinking about, you know, when we're talking about things that we can do as um, individuals at the local level um, mm -hmm. to protect ourselves during, you know, the days that where there's high pollution. By the way, where can people look um, to figure out where there's high pollution? Is it on their weather app on the iPhone or where do you suggest... It's kind of tricky. So okay. um, there is, there's the kind of big general trends, um, which work for when you've got like a big fire event and stuff, are airnow.gov um, has an air quality index. And so what the, the thing with the indexes is that they can be kind of different um, and, your, and your Department of Environmental Quality probably has monitors. But so what those are based on are these monitors that are set up to monitor, you know, the criteria pollutants with the, from the Clean Air Act. Um, and they're very sophisticated, they're very well calibrated, and then they kind of take in the different pollutants they're getting, and then they kind of give you a, you know, is the air generally good for most people? Is it unhealthy for sensitive groups? You know, kind of mixed together to kind of give people advice. Mostly so that, you know, if you've got really bad heart disease or you've got bad asthma, you know that today's not the day to go for, maybe don't go running around outside, maybe do like a indoor yoga class or, or something. Um, the thing is, those are that you tend to only have a few of those because they are very expensive, high-quality monitoring stations. And increasingly, what we're learning is that air pollution is a very, um, you know, it can be like a street-by-street -street thing. You know what I mean? Um, and so, some people are doing something called um, purple air, which is a, um, which is, the, it, where there's kind of this trade-off with the sensor. So they're, they're. Um, you can kind of put them anywhere. Like anyone can buy them. They're a couple hundred bucks. You can stick one outside your house. You can put one inside your house. The problem is they're, they're not actually like, I think they were kind of based on like laser technology, kind of like scanning. They're not, um, and I, again, I'm not an engineer, um, but they don't have the same like calibration, you know, sophisticated levels. And so their, their numbers are going to be a little more off and fuzzy. I had not personally um, advocated people like buying them again, because my patients are usually pretty resource limited. Um, and so telling them to go buy a $200 air monitor where they can't really change what their pollution is anyway, <laughs> I really didn't feel like doing it. Um, when the fires and the smoke stuff, they have, they did kind of seem to have a little more granularity, which was, can sometimes be helpful. So I'm not sure if there's eventually going to kind of be a role for, um, you know, understanding that at a much closer level, but kind of the big picture is you can kind of go to airnow.gov and kind of look up your zip code and kind of get a sense of where you're at. Um, the, one of the other challenging things is that you know, I, I think we are going to be in a, a phase of things where we kind of realize that the analogy to smoking is increasingly important because, you know, we used to say, you know, like, you know, way back when be like, okay, well, smoking doesn't come. Okay. Well, maybe smoking causes problems, but it can't be a problem just to smell the smoke. And then it turns out, oh gosh, secondhand smoke is actually a really big problem. Um, and so one of the things that's hard is when they did this huge study of Medicare beneficiaries about, you know, traffic related air pollution, we found like dose dependent responses and increases in mortality, even at levels of air pollution that we've kind of determined are safe. Um, and we know that like, for example, you know, if you're on average, you know, they, cause they stick the sensor by, you know, a park or something, or, you know, um, you know, if on average things look okay there, even still like being right up next to the road or sitting in traffic on the road, you know, no one's sticking a sensor in the middle of traffic where we're all parked, you know what I mean? <laughs> you know, waiting like that, that might have it carry kind of very different risks. And so we're still kind of learning about this. And I kind of sometimes think, well, I don't know how many more studies we need about it. Maybe we should just work on cleaning it up and move on to the next problem. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that will be the day. I know. I'm like, well, it's like, you know, another study on how bad cigarettes are. I'm like, we could, we could keep studying it. Or what if we just took that money and help people quit? That's what I was thinking. Matches? 
I was thinking the same thing. I'm just like, let's, let's really find some really I know. It's things like, that are going to help you know, people. I was, yeah, I was on this thing the other day and someone's like, well, we should do a study of exactly how much pollution is here. And I'm like, kind of, or like, maybe let's just take all that money for all these studies and just make electric cars cheaper. <laughs> like, exactly. So that we can, yes. So we yeah, can participate. Like, like, you know, maybe, or maybe we could just all agree that lighting things on fire and breathing them into the lungs is a bad idea. And let's just try to have less fire. Tell that to my neighbors. Um, yeah, that, so... is, that is an issue. That's, you know, depending where people are. I have some patient, like, I had a patient the other day who was, you know, hospitalized in the ICU with a severe asthma attack because her neighbors were burning their leaf pile. Yes. Yeah. And I, I go, I wake up in the morning and I go outside and there's all this gray stuff all over my house and on my deck. And I'm just like, what is this? And I'm like, oh. No, and yeah. that stuff off gusses. Like ash, it's not neutral. And so, and maybe it's just, you know, again, it's like, and I don't know that like regulation and laws are always the right answer. Like I think sometimes just education and just kind of understanding. It's like now it's considered extremely rude if you just like blew smoke into someone's face, right? You know what I mean? And I think if we all just kind of recognize there's nothing completely magical about a cigarette, you know, smoke, maybe don't blow leaf pile smoke into your neighbor, you know, maybe compost your leaves. Why light them on fire? Like, you know, just, you know, well, just kind of gentle cultural changes that we could all kind of do to be kinder to each other. Exactly. Because it's interesting you say that because there are laws in, in this county and in this city, you're not supposed to um, light anything on fire. No fire piles. I mean, that's absolutely. Oh, well yeah. So I think you're right about the education piece. I, I mean, I don't know. Is there, you know, I, I read a lot on, um, you know, anti-inflammatory diet and nutrition. We, you know, we're big advocates of nutrition. You know, we're doing a research study on nutrition and, and um, chronic migraines currently. And um, I know it does decrease inflammation, um, but do you have any idea if there has been any studies on that and pollution, you know, protecting ourselves you know, through self-care like and eating well? and stuff? You know, yeah. Not, um, so, you know, I don't, I, I, I'm not familiar. I do know, um, that's a good question. I, I have a upcoming interview with a lung, my, you know, an immunologist who studies the immune system in the lung. So I will ask. <laughs> oh, perfect. Yeah. And then get back to but, me and I can um, add it. I, yeah, I will. That's the same person who's looking at wildfire smoke effects. So, um, I, I don't know on, on like traffic related air pollution or what, but again, going back to the like lighting things on fire. So for cigarettes, absolutely. So for example, they've done this studies on, um, you know, smokers lungs where they look at kind of the fluid in the lungs and the alveolus where they kind of take samples of like the lung fluid. Um, and they looked at people who were just kind of, you know, generally out. Um, and so you had these kind of higher inflammatory like interleukin one beta. I'm sure you um, is a kind of like an inflammatory cytokine um, that was higher in the in the in the lung flu the list the lungs the air sacs of of smokers versus non-smokers and then the most important thing is that they get challenged with like something that's an inflammatory stimulus like an infection in this case it was something called lipopolysaccharide they had a skyrocketing level much more inflammation I mean everyone has more inflammation when when that happens but the smokers had a much more significant inflammation than the non-smokers same with they were more likely to get some of the more aggressive white blood cells, the neutrophils come into their lungs. They're more likely to have leaky lungs, all those things when they got kind of stressed with a, with like kind of an infectious stressor. Um, so again, I don't know if they've done the study. If I had to guess, I'm sure it's probably yes. <laughs> if, I know. I, I'm, a, I'm like, gosh, can we take like eat a lot of blackberries and prevent <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> some inflammation or... I don't know. 
Or just be um, nice to empower ourselves, you know, with Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of it, I think sometimes it's just like the awareness instead. You know, for example, like for me, it's like I kind of think about when I'm gonna exercise, you know what I mean? Like um, you know, a little bit and um, you know, kind of letting the maybe the rush hour die down and and thinking about kind of like, you know, what when to you know, if I'm you know, driving, like trying to avoid high traffic times. And, and then when I, um, you know, I'm walking somewhere with my kids or even like, you know, honestly, when I, it was so funny when I went to my real estate agent, when we decided to buy a house, I literally had pulled out the, pulled out the Portland hazard map because we live on the West coast. There's always earthquakes. So I kind of looked up where all the fault lines were and picked solid bedrock granite with no fault line. And then I pulled up like the like upstream air quality maps and like, you know, I was like, okay, I want to be on a bike boulevard. I want to be by a park. I want to like here it seems like you know there's like the emissions profile seems like there's fewer air pollutions here and I kind of went and showed this to my real estate agent he was like well, where, where is this I'm like well I don't know what neighborhood that is he's like well what's the school district I was like I don't know <laughs> oh my gosh well no but that's something... and he was just like nobody else has ever wanted to buy a house like this and I was like well what else are people thinking about and he's, he's like, like you're crazy I know <laughs> and I was like oh I care about bedrock granite and air quality <laughs> yeah something nobody thinks about no but now everyone's gonna think about this when you're buying a house you're gonna pull out all your environmental maps. To start my like real estate agency where it's an air oh, quality yes oh that's a perfect niche erica what a great idea oh my i'm gonna have to yeah. go into business with you um as we're gonna fight air pollution together and <laughs> Well, low, low VOC construction, minimal volatile organic compounds. Yeah, yeah, I would totally do it. Um, clean, clean diesel equipment, building the house. <laughs> or you could just live out in the country like we do and have a nice little homestead with chickens and not worry too much. Until your neighbors light things on fire. Oh, shoot. Yeah, I forgot about that part. Bonfires and fireworks. Yep. And the, and the tractors. Oh, and the tractors. I'm sorry. We do. I drive the tractor all the time. Whoops. That's diesel. How old? When's the engine from? Uh, it's actually pretty new. We, we bought, it's, uh, 2000, uh, 2016. Oh, you're fine. Oh, okay. Good. Woo. Well, it still stinks. Good job. Well, I mean, I it's like, like it. you no, know, it might still stink. Well, I mean, well, I mean, again, the, so it, it might be a little different for tractors, but the, a lot of the problematic years for diesel were pre 2007. And then they put in this filtration technology, which was a little bit of a, hinky according to all my new friends and trucking who I've been talking to about this but like the first few generations of the filters weren't that great but they're they're starting to work a lot better now so, um, so you kind of you sacrifice a little mileage but you clean up a lot of the particulate exhaust um that was so problematic I don't know as much about tractors but I, I think 2016 seems like it should have been after a lot of the particulate technology got better so, I mean, even if, well, so, so let's say we all have no tractors and everything. I mean, for people who have to like, or mow the lawn or, or use, um, you know, the air blower or the leaf blower, um, and we're inhaling, you know, a lot of that gas. I mean, should we be wearing a mask or? You know, I think I, it kind of depends, you know, I, 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 all these things are kind of trade-offs. So I wonder about kind of like who, who you are, right? I probably wouldn't use the stuff around kids. So um, the, um, because kids are kind of the most vulnerable. Um, so the, um, and it depends, you know, so they make like electric leaf blowers and like electric mowers and that sort of thing, which are obviously safer. So lawn equipment actually has some of the worst emission profiles because there's kind of like no rules for it. So, you know, remember back before like the Clean Air Act and people had to pass smog and stuff, it's like people were just you know, like you couldn't steal anything in like a lot of the cities. Um, so there's not really that much emission, there's no real emissions requirements for lawn equipment. So they frequently are kind of some of the biggest sources of actual particulate matter pollution. Um, so like my husband, when he was 
wanting to, I made him get like an electronic leaf blower and a, we have an electronic, we use an electronic mower, um, like a lawnmower and stuff. Um, mostly because I'm like, look, if I'm a lung doctor, this is what we should do. <laughs> but, yes. um, but because, and then the other nice thing is then you actually never have to like go get gas for the mower, which is, I remember being a kid and I like always mowed the lawn and I always kind of felt a little sick after I was done mowing. You know what I mean? Like, but I also did like an acre with a walk behind. Oh yeah. That <laughs> and my dad definitely. would pay me, like it took me like six hours and my dad would pay me like $20 at the end of it. It's <laughs> That is slave labor. <laughs> complete scam I know I remember one time when I figured out he paid like the neighborhood kid 50 bucks I was like what I felt so betrayed Uh, that'll traumatize you you. (laughs) no but um yeah so the lawn equipment is kind of notorious there are there are better and better electric options for that especially because the nice thing about like for stuff that's not going so far away from your house right you know what I mean like you can you know, plug it in and, and, and use it. And actually my husband likes his, his new electric blower. He really likes, it looks like some crazy Battlestar Galactica like thing. It's um, a plug-in? It's a plug-in? Well, it's a, ba- it's a battery. So it's like, oh, this it's really big, there's like a big powerful battery that you charge the battery and then and, use it. And, and it, it works lasts. pretty well. Some people don't buy them because they, they don't oh. work as well or. Um, well, I don't know. I mean, I guess it depends how big, I mean, it seems to work, it blows stuff away. Yes. Okay. Perfect. That's get, all you need to do. But I mean, I, again, I don't like, I, I'm not like, I, I don't want to, I don't pretend to work for like consumer reports testing <laughs> leaf blowers, but um, yeah, I mean like the, well, the grass gets cut and the leaves get blown off. Okay. Perfect. Electric <laughs> mowers and electric leaf blowers. That's <laughs> where he does, we... he does like the yard stuff. So, oh. you know, I guess I should, I I should know, have him yeah, on. So does my husband too. Yeah. Uh, um, as we kind of sum up um, the podcast are, can you is there like one big summary or, or top tips for, you know, the people listening to this podcast in, in terms of, um, you know, preventing disease from air pollution and keeping themselves well? Yeah. Well, I would, I always say don't light things on fire and breathe them into your lungs. That's the top tip. So top tip. And it applies to uh, tobacco, diesel, and, you know, forests. I even made a t-shirt that says that. So Awesome. Is that air health? Is that at your website? Uh, yeah, it is at airhealthourhealth.org. You can buy it and all the proceeds go to the American Lung Association. Oh, or, cool. You know, maybe I'll invite, I'll pick some other organizations at some point too, and I can learn more about them. Um, so I think the, the big thing I think is just to kind of be aware of it and to kind of start to learn where your resources are. And then also just kind of knowing that the, the, um, the monitors are, are helpful, but they're, they're probably not telling the whole story. Um, and so, um, I think kind of, I think learning about your own home a little bit and kind of what might make air quality unsafe in your own home. So like number one through 10 is if someone is smoking or vaping in the house, they should stop. yes that's probably like the leading cause of bad air like you know we talked about like being worried about sealy lakes you know having pm 2.5 of 200 here in oregon at the heights of the fires it was like 500 and we were the worst in the world at that time but like four smokers sitting in a room smoking can get your pm 2.5 levels up over like 600 or something like after like 10 minutes so that is really one of the the biggest things that and obviously has just devastating effects for the kids growing up in those houses um, so that's big, you know, the smoke-free home. And then that kind of unfortunately also applies to things like, um, you know, like indoor fires and stuff. So and not that I mean, I love, I'm like, I grew up in Oregon with like fireplaces and like, I love it. But, you know, just even just trying to be conscientious about it. Like if it's a really kind of bad air quality day, that's probably not the day to do it. Right. Or, you know, maybe, maybe not like leaving it burning all day, but maybe just like a little short time for having whatever ambiance you were going for and then moving away or moving towards like, you know, the 
cleaner fires or, um, and then when there are wildfires, really trying to minimize indoor air pollution. So that's where they talk about, um, you know, avoiding, like kind of not cooking as much indoors, you know, that's maybe a good time for like peanut butter and jellies and, and especially not, you know, cooking like toast and bacon and things that are going to like kind of do that kind of burnt, you know, emission of a lot of particulates. I think a lot of it can just kind of be an awareness and kindness and like thinking about who in our communities is not breathing healthy air um, and trying to make sure that we're not, um, that we're kind of trying to design our community so that everybody gets a chance to breathe healthy air. That's amazing. Yeah. I think the work that you're doing is just absolutely incredible. And I'm, I'm so excited to see what's next for you guys. And, and, um, we'll leave your website, airhealthourhealth.org. Is that correct? Yep. In the podcast details. And then with a lot of the, um, kind of organizations that you mentioned, like the American Lung Association and the airnow.gov as um, potential resources for everyone Mm -hmm. listening today, just to kind of get familiar with. And then also some of the resources that you have on your website as well. You know, when we're talking about air filters and, and things like that, looking at the California Air Resources Board. So I think that'll be super great to have for everybody listening to the show. And, and I just want to thank you so incredibly much for doing this today. And taking the time out as a busy ICU physician and mother of, is it three? Are you mother of three children? Yep. (laughs) Yes. So this is amazing. You're doing like 18,000 million things. I don't know how you do it and hopefully you're staying well. (laughs) Well, right back at you. And thank you for, you know, working. I mean, I got three kids. I don't do pediatrics because sick children terrify me, but thank you for uh, working to get our kids all healthy. I appreciate it. And um, we're trying. Yeah. Hopefully this episode, everyone got you pumped about helping and advocate for air health and decreased air pollution and and hopefully helping decrease some of the climate change that's going on. And it's up to us at an individual level, but maybe even helping at the local um, level, whether it be town or city or even state. And if you want to learn more about Dr. Erica Mosesen's, um Air Health, Our Health, go to her podcast on most uh, favorite podcast platforms, iTunes, um, Spotify, you name it, at Air Health, Our Health. And then her website with all the resources that we mentioned is airhealthourhealth.org. And I'll put that in the podcast details in the show notes as well. And then you can check out her social media handle at Air Health, Our Health as well. Thank you for listening all the way to the end. That means so much to us. If you enjoyed and found this podcast episode helpful, please subscribe if you haven't already. Rate us if you haven't and review us if possible on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher, wherever you're at. Supporting our podcast brings really this awesome information to more women everywhere. And together with you, we really truly can further our mission for all women to be their healthiest and most powerful selves. Without you, we couldn't reach as many of these women that need the help that we can offer. So find us on Instagram at health underscore is underscore power. Snap a pic anytime, tag us that we know who you are and what you'd like to hear about on the show. Even maybe some of your pain points, struggles, or more resources um, that you'd like to know more about. And you can check um, out healthispower.com. That's our website, which has the show notes, but also uh, our episode episodes are embedded on that website with informational articles, recipes, um, and more. Peace, love, and power.